They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Tokyo Talk boy. music. Say, a lot of folks gotta wait, wait. I won from the gate, gate. Don't be mad, just be great, great. And be ready to put in that work To feel all that hurt Damn near went berserk But it's worth it when you're seeing that the people feel ya And it's worth it when you're feeling that the people see ya And it's worth it when you hear the people say That Craig Seymour done made my day Hey What's up, what's up? Hey What's up, what's up? Hey What's up, what's up? Hey What is up with y'all my People, my people, it, it is wonderful to be back with you for another week. I was a little delayed this week. I apologize, Anita Baker style, um, but it's just one of those things. Um, so in any event, welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. Welcome to, welcome back, whatever way. We welcome all. Welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour. You know me. I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now. You can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com. I'm also an author who has written a number of books. There's my biography. Well, it's not my biography. It's not of me. But there's the biography I wrote of Luther Vandross called Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. Then there's my memoir, um, which is about me, um, about being a grad school stripper hoe. It's called All I Could Bear, My Life in the Strip Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C. There's my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for love, Who's Your Daddy?, and my forthcoming special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson, coming very, very soon. And that's what I was going to say earlier. That's the um, main reason why I'm kind of very off schedule now, because I'm so in the thick of finishing it up. And it's one of those things where, you know, when I have like all the research laid out and everything, and I'm in the frame of mind. If I stop, it's going to take me hours to get right back to that part of what I'm trying to do. So... I've been kind of just finishing things where I've been close to finishing things. That that's cut into a little bit my, my, uh, a little bit about. Cha, see, let me take a drink of my Red Bull because obviously it's, I'm not lubricated or something. All right, so that's a little bit of. <laughs> so that's a little bit of what has been cutting into my podcast time. See, sometimes you just need to take it slow. Um, Because I've been sort of doing marathon hours finishing that. But enough about that, especially since I fucked it up so badly so many times. What is going on this week? I mean, I've got to tell y'all, like, we're in this fourth quarter, which means a lot of new um, music and book releases but at the same time, everybody's so anniversary crazy, and the fourth quarter is always, you know, before the holiday season, is always the big season for releases. That between keeping up with the new stuff and, you know, finding pictures to post or little video clips to post to celebrate the anniversaries of everything that came out in, in the last, you know, since I've been born years or whatever, it's just, it's exhausting. But... 
Today, this week, I'm going to focus, and I'm going to talk about um, On Time, A Princely Life in Funk by Morris Day, um, his memoir. Um, Morris Day, of course, the lead singer of the legendary Minneapolis funk band, The Time. Um, and the book was written with David Ritz, who really is um, one of the best in the game. I mean, he's written two of that I just think are absolute um, R&B biographical essentials. Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin. If you have not read Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin, I highly advise you to put it as your next read. It's so, um, it puts her life, it shows why she's important both in terms of her artistry, but also in terms of how her story sort of parallels the story of Black America during that time. And it's just very, very, very important. And I'm going to pause for a second now and move this chair because it keeps squeaking and I don't want to keep leaning up for it. So I'm sorry if that makes a big noise. And secondly, Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye. Um, and interestingly enough, like when he during the process of um, working on the book with Marvin, he actually co-wrote Sexual Healing. So he's getting it from all ends. He's getting that publishing check from the music industry and the publishing check from the book industry. So, um, and he's worked with Janet a number of times. He wrote the story that went with the infamous topless um, Rolling Stone cover story, Janet era, and then he also did the Velvet Rope era Rolling Stone cover story. He's written a number of articles about Janet that ran in Essence, Upscale, and other places. And in addition, he wrote some of the Demita Joe interludes, and he collaborated with um, Janet on True You. So, And I've also talked to him a number of times just for different things here and there. He's a very, very, um, very, very nice guy. And, you know, I- I've made some my comments on this um at one point, Jimmy Jam had tweeted something that he thought that David Ritz was the only person that could tell the story of uh, Flight Time and Jimmy Terry. And I took a little offense to that just because I was like, the politics of saying that this white man who, you know, definitely has done, you know, he knows the culture, he's done his work and everything like that. But just to say that a white writer is the only writer that could write something about you, I just took, as a black writer, who, you know, I just took a little bit of offense to that, especially since as, as black writers, it's always that much hard for harder for us anyway. So it's like, I don't really think we need um, some of our biggest talents out there saying that the only person that could ever do their story justice is... A white person. I mean, I know Jimmy Jam didn't mean anything of it, and in my comments, I didn't mean anything against David Ritz because I've learned so much from David Ritz. Ritz, and I think um, the story of black music as chronicled wouldn't be the same were it not for David Ritz. But at the same time, we do need books on black music, but music by black writers, and those don't those don't have to be um, those don't have to be ideals incompatible um, things that we work toward. You know what I mean? We can celebrate David and appreciate David, but also say, look, publishing industry, what is up? Why is there so few books on black music in general? Why are there so few books on black music that are by black people? What gives? Because if you notice how they do us, they kind of lifetime movie us in the publishing industry is... And this kind of falls into that category with, without saying anything about the quality of the book, but, you know, 
Have you ever noticed that when you look in the music section, if you go to the music section, if you go, you still have a Barnes and Noble in your town or whatever you might have, you know, you you see books on sprawling rock history, like the Woodstock story, the story of this, the stories of how the Beatles changed America, the story of how the Rolling Stones changed America, the story of the this and that, the you know, just all of these books um the 70s rock the singer songwriter generation all of these books on errors that really help you put the rock story together but when you go to the black books what do you have this person's memoir that person's memoir that person's memoir they don't want us they don't put us allow us to write books where we were able to put um, the music in a context. It's always these just very, very individual stories. That's partially the reason why um, David Ritz's um, Aretha is so, what's it called? Respect? Yeah, respect is so important because that actually tells the story of a figure, but in a much larger context. But we need books like about all of 70 soul and books about the 80, you know, books that deal with Prince and Michael Jackson and the things, the conversations between them and how they change the industry. We need books that tell our stories in a comprehensive way. And we need some of those books to, um, and we need some of those books to be written by black writers. And if that saying that offends somebody, but just too damn bad, but that's just the truth. So Anyway, getting back to the Morris Day book, um, you know, this is all kind of my era, my teen era, because that, that was, I was like a teen during the whole Prince, you know, Purple Rain and everything like that. I was in high school. So, you know, the, the whole hate, you know, I saw the Purple Rain tour probably three or four times. Um, so just that whole era of Prince, the time, Vanity Six, Apollonia Six, Sheila E., The Family. I'm interested because that was part of my um, youth and I'm interested in their individual stories and I'm interested in the stories about how they all come together. But I don't know if I'm rare in that category or if um, just because of Prince's death, things have shifted. But all this to say, on time, a princely life in funk ain't really that kind of book. It is not really rooted toward Moore's Day and the Time story. And it makes it very clear from, even though it's touted as a memoir, and it makes it very clear from the first line when Morris writes, Prince is the first word in this book. I place him first because he's my biggest influence, the person who most powerfully shaped my musical life. So I'm like, okay, well, this really isn't, strict up like a Moore's Day memoir. This is like, I mean, it's a memoir of his time with Prince, I guess, you know, but it's not really, I, I'm thinking it's going to be a memoir of Moore's Day with his band, The Time, and all their goings on and everything like that. But it really is heavily focused um, on Prince, starting from the first, like I said, from the first line. But then a few pages later, Prince becomes a whole ass voice in the story where there's this imaginary Prince voice that starts talking back to Morris. And this lasts um, for the entire book. Moreover, this imagined Prince is an ornery motherfucker, like telling Morris, and I quote, I'm a hit maker. You want to make this book a hit? There's no book without me. Ignore me at your risk. Ignore me and you'll lose your readers. 
Truth is, you can't tell your story without me. And it's all written, you know, Prince-like with all the U's and the, um, all his little punctuations and, and the twos and everything like that. Um, but then after that, this fake prince has the unmitigated gall to tell Morris, you using me to get more people to read your story. And so I don't really get it. But at that point, the problem is it does sort of feel like the book what well, is put together um, so that it's is really using the connection with Prince to tell the story as as opposed to, I mean, of course you can't, wouldn't have the time without Prince, but they still had an existence in and of themselves and they had their own experiences and everything. So it really does kind of feel like it's more um, directed toward the Prince fan who might be a casual time fan than it is to a person who's really, really into the time because... Um, like I said, they make up a whole prince. They make up a whole prince to be in the book, you know. Um, so that's just something you should know. I think what's my should you something you. But um, because that was it, it was a little bit surprising to me, and I think that that sets up a lot of love it or hate it scenarios with the book. That just really depends upon. It makes a lot of um sort of unique artistic choices and then it just either you're going to like that choice and you're going to like the way things are done that way or you're not and that's going to play into um how you like the book i mean if you really only care about prince and aren't as interested in the story of morris and the time then you'll probably be good okay but if like me you were looking for something like a funk version of motley Crue's the dirt then you might be wildly disappointed um, and another thing that would be, um, divisive, I think, is just the use of the multiple voices in telling the story. Because you already have the regular Morris voice, and then you have the fake Prince voice, and then later there's MD, um, M, capital, I mean, capital M, capital D. And this version of Morris, um, is after Purple Rain, like once he starts getting gassed on his own stardom and stuff, and he starts abusing drugs and alcohol, then you start hearing from MD. So it's it's kind of a lot, you know. You wonder why it can't just be one straight tale of him and what he's doing. I don't know if it was like, is this a way to make it more creative? Is this a way to make it? I don't know, but um, it's a lot. And I personally, this is just a taste thing. I personally don't like fake voices or persona voices in a memoir. Um, I think part of the process of writing a memoir is reconciling or making peace with the many sides of yourself. So I think that's part of the, pro to me, that's part of the process of doing it. We all have different parts. We all have crazy parts and, and everything like that, but all the same, at the end of the day, we live in one body, we live in one brain, and we have to find some way of functioning with that. So dissecting the parts and giving each one of those a different voice in the memoir, that's just not my thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying whatever, do you like what you like. I just don't particularly like that. Um, now, I don't mind 
like a book like Itina, which has other people speaking in it. I don't mind other people fleshing out the story or something like that, but it's their actual voices from actual interviews. It's not somebody making up um, a voice. Because the other thing that always, when there's always those m- multiple voices, especially like with this MD character, and it's like that's the character that you know, was sleeping around with the, with the drugs. It always reminds me of some corny old cartoon, you know, the ones they used to have where the devil was on, a person, they would have a person and the devil was on one of, the sh- one of their shoulders whispering in the ear and the angel is on another. So it just feels a little corny to me. Um, but that's what I mean, that from the start of this book, there are going to be a lot of things that you are not going to like or are going to like just based upon the taste, your taste, just based upon what you bring to the book. And like I said, these things are just things that I don't particularly like. But obviously, you know, David's a great, very accomplished writer and everything. You know, there's obviously reasons he just chose to do this or just that he wanted to experiment with it. And I understand that too. I understand just art creatively. You just don't get as many biographies as David Ritz has done. Maybe he just didn't feel like writing the same old shit. Maybe he just felt like switching it up. And if that's what he needed to do to keep his creativity going and juice and to make him creatively excited about the project, then all be it. And that's, that's perfectly fine. You know, um, but I think just the best thing about the book is knowing what you're getting into. And so even though I didn't necessarily take to the focus on print or the narrative structure, I still found a lot of things um, interesting. For example, like Morris talks about the development of Prince's sort of androgynous style. And he says that Prince would watch um, his hairdressers really clo- closely in order to help craft his androgynous style. The interesting thing is Morris doesn't mention whether or not the hairdressers were straight, straight gay, male or female, but... It's. I just find that um, there's a lot about Prince watching, like watching certain, watching people at a club to how they respond to records and watching that. So I just can sort of visualize Prince watching some flamboyant hairdresser or stuff and just picking up mannerisms and things like that. So I thought that that was interesting. Um, Morris also talks a lot about his early days with Prince and the band Grand Central that also included Andre Simone. And one of the things he describes um, is how one of Grand Central's limitations actually led to a key component of the legendary Minneapolis sound because they couldn't afford any horns. And, you know, this was coming out of this was like late 70s coming into the 80s. But, you know, the 70s was the era of the big soul bands, the, you know, Lakesides and the with cameos, all those band with all those horns, Earth, Wind and Fire, with all them horns. So. That was the sound that was big on radio, you know, so they couldn't afford all that. So they decided to recreate it with synthesizers because, of course, coming into the early um, late 70s and early 80s, you had a wide development in synthesizer sounds and also the price of the equipment steadily went down, you know, when... um, when Stevie Wonder was making his synthesized albums in the early 70s, like the computer took up a whole room where now it was something that you could travel with. So all these kind of technical developments play into um, that. So they had to play all the keyboard parts, they had to play all the horn parts by keyboard. So I just thought that was really interesting. It's one of those things that's just interesting and makes sense because you think to yourself, you know, 
what are those keyboards supposed to sound like? Oh, they're probably trying to sound like horns. And it's just the closest the synthesizers of the time of the time could um could approximate horns. So just another interesting thing. He describes what an average Grand Central set was like, which I thought was interesting. He writes, We might open with Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shining Star. Then Prince would sing a couple of Rufus songs. He loved Shaka Khan and sang Shaka's lead with, leads with as much passion as Shaka herself. He'd tear up, tell me something good and sweet thing. And I would love to hear, um, this me, not Morris, I would love to hear Prince really just do his thing on a Shaka um, song. But I just think that's great. I mean, I know that they were friends and everything like that, but I didn't realize that he was really kind of mimicking her and following and, you know, kind of trying to learn from her vocals back in the day. But then I was also intrigued that they did... Um, LTD's Love Ballad, Morris writes, we were all fans of Jeffrey Osborne, LTD's lead singer, because I would have loved to hear Prince do like, imagine Prince doing Concentrate on You, or We Both Deserve Each Other's Love, so that just got me thinking of all sorts of um, things that would be great to hear, be wonderful as they're going through the vaults, things that might just be around somewhere. Um... And then from there, he goes on to describe how Prince went solo and became increasingly popular with a crossover audience by adding rock elements to his sound and presentation. So, they, you know, it got very much about the right look to cross over and the right this and that to cross over. And that's one of the reasons for the splintering off of the time, because the time was like very funky with their suits and stuff. They were very kind of traditional looking like a, a soul or R&B band where Prince, you know, then first with Dirty Mind had to break out the little panties, the mantis, and all that kind of stuff. And um, so that was all very deliberate. And there's some tea that he does spill um, in, along the way. Like, he suggests that, without any proof, but he suggests that Andre Simone actually wrote Do Me Baby. So I would like to know, I would like to know that. Um, and he also kind of suggests that that's the reason why the two of them fell out. But then they did come back together for um, Dance Electric. So I don't know. Ask Jody Watley or something. Maybe he told her when they were married or something. But um, I just thought that was interesting. But one of my favorite parts of the book is when Morris describes how Prince came up with the concept of Vanity Six. And I'm just going to read from this. Um, the origin of that act goes back to a few years. Oh, let me just start again. The origin of that act goes back a few years to another time Prince and I watched a movie together. We were at his crib where he had a VHS copy of A Star is Born, the Barbara Streisand Chris Christopherson version from 1976. He was fascinated by the idea of a male rock star turning an unknown female singer into a star herself. Combine that with all that time he spent watching Mar the Mary Jane girls open up for Rick James. Shade. But anyway, in 1980, Denise Matthews was Rick State at the American Music Awards. She was a knockout. That night, Prince managed to strike up a conversation with him. And that night, Prince managed to strike up a conversation with her. Oh, I get it. Oh, I'm sorry. Y'all, I'm messing all... 
1980, Denise Matthews was Rick James's date at the um, American Music Awards, and then Prince tried to holler. So he was trying to, to, to steal Rick's date. So anyway, and so I guess he pitched to her this um, idea of a three-lady vocal group, which get the original I, the original name for the group was the Hookers. <laughs> can you can you? Ooh, I like that new song by the Hookers. I mean, maybe if they had been like a punk group or something, but you know, R and B was still was. He was the most far out of the of in R and B at that time, and I just don't think that would have fly. And he wanted the um his initial idea for the lead singer was to be called Vagina. But I guess he and um, Denise compromised with um, <laughs> with Vanity. But can you imagine going to the record store? Because it wasn't streaming, y'all. People know your business. You got to ask for shit. Because a lot of times, especially a hood record store, the records was behind the counters. So you would have to go up there. Oh, yeah. Do you have um, Nasty Girl? By... <laughs> do you have Nasty Girl by Vagina in the hookers? So anyway, um, just file that into ideas that better off never um, came to fruition. Uh, and then I guess the other of my favorite stories um, from the book happened in the mid um, OOs. This was when Prince was in doing his Hollywood thing. He was renting a place in Hollywood for $95,000 a month. And this is how Morris describes it. Um, he says, wasn't enough that my boy leased the place. He went on and purpleized it. The gates opened to a purple driveway that led to a purple carpeted grand entryway into the estate where all the floors were purple and all the rooms had oversized portraits of Prince. Before we played, Prince gave me a tour, 12 bedrooms, a hair salon, a massage parlor, and in the place of the gym, Prince had put a purple-themed nightclub complete with a DJ booth. So that's kind of bothered. I mean, I would have still wanted the gym, but it's to have an in-house nightclub. So anyway, then he, Morris talks about another day. He, he walks in, and he hears Superstitious playing. And he writes, I wondered whether it was a record or Stevie. It was Stevie. For the next song, Prince motioned for me to get on the drums, but when he saw that Questlove had already started breaking out some beats, he put me on keyboard, still directing, always directing. Prince had Anthony Hamilton and Erica Badu singing background. We sang old school stuff, Motown, Gamblin' Huff, 80s funk, 90s funk, you name it. Prince singing lead, then Stevie, then me. So that sounds like a magical night. I want tapes of... The those um, concerts, you know, that sounds like it'd be wonderful. So overall, it was an entertaining read. Um, I just think it's important to know what you are getting into um, with it. So the other thing that I want to talk about to discuss this week is something that I was a little conflicted about. Um, and this kind of plays into the whole fourth quarter releases and stuff like that. But this is um, Mary J. Blige's forthcoming greatest hits package that features a lot of rare remixes called Her Story, Volume 1, which will be re released on December 6th in three different formats, a single CD, a double 12-inch vinyl, 
and a box set of eight seven inches. Now, I've gone through so many emotions about this. When I first saw it announced on Twitter, I didn't even believe it. It just seemed so random. And then when it was officially released, you know, with, the, with press release and stuff, I got kind of pissed because, and I've talked about this before, like with Janet remixes and stuff like that. In the digital age, I really don't need somebody picking and choosing which remixes to be put out online or whatever. Like, I just released the fucking Kraken. Like, my feeling is that if the mix was commercially released on a CD single, on a 12-inch, or if it was like a official promo for the radios or the clubs and such, just put the shit out. You know what I mean? Let people have what they like. Because this was, um, especially when you think about the 90s, the 90s still was a lot of regionalism um, in R&B music. So, I mean, what bumped, like, if I was listening to WPGC in... Um, in D.C., that wasn't the same thing that was bumping or the same. They weren't playing the same mixes when I went down to visit family in South Carolina or something like that. And so it's just like a one person can't one person just sitting at the record company can't just know all of that, you know. So, like I said, just put stuff. Who is it hurting just to have the stuff out? You know what I mean? But my other thing, and I know this is going to make some folks mad, but it's going to have to be what it's going to be. y'all. We all got to go to collective therapy for our addiction to these anniversary reissues and merches, whether it be vinyl reissues or, like like I said, anniversary merch, because it is really killing new music. I mean, that's just the truth. It is killing new music because if these artists, you know, especially these veteran artists with a big catalog and stuff, and especially their record companies— feel they can make enough, if not more money, by just re-releasing stuff and adding some merch to it instead of putting out new music and having to deal with the production and promotion costs behind it, we ain't never going to get any new music. You know, why, why would you pay for something new when you can make more money from something old? It doesn't even make good business sense. But we want new music. You know what I mean? And, um... I just think if this trend continues, we're just going to keep getting like cheaply produced new artists that they, you know, they recorded on the cheap, you know, kind of bedroom track soul and stuff like that and elaborate reissues. But we're never going to get mature statements from our veteran artists like, you know, like Mariah Carey's last album was fantastic. Um, We could have used another one this year, you know. Older artists still have something to say, and I feel like we're just cutting off a whole um, part of the artistry by focusing on all this anniversary reissue stuff. As much as I like a good anniversary tea and stuff, I I just think we have to kind of... give it, you know, just give this some consideration. Because remember, it, the writing's already on the wall. I mean, it's like we were supposed to get a new, we were supposed to get new Janet music, but instead we got mad vinyl reissues and different colors, different this and that and all, and a $400 Rhythm Nation jacket. And now she's not even talking about making new music. You know what I mean? And why should she? Because she has so many anniversaries to come. I mean, they haven't even got to the Janet anniversary yet. And then there's going to be the Velvet Rope. And then there's going to be, you know. And now we see the same thing with Mary. She dropped two singles this year 
thriving with Nas. And no, um, neither of them really popped. So it's kind of like you could see them switching it up rather than um, getting any more new music. We're going to get in this odd collection of hits and remixes. Um, and then a particularly weird thing about the timing of this Mary's Hits package is that November 29th marks the 25th anniversary of her album, My Life, which whether it's your favorite Mary album or, or not, because there's just different ways of looking at Mary's career in terms of like the, the songs on the album or the way she's singing or whatever. But My Life virtually defined the mood and sound of R&B of that entire era. So even if it's not your favorite Mary album, that album is just, in terms of what defined the era, the merging of hip-hop and soul, that um, album was it. And in many ways, it's still the standard for what new female artists aspire to. It The um, level of like, you know, that, that kind of hip-hop, edge but also those deeply in- introspective lyrics i mean almost any female r&b star that has broken through and like since mary has had that even somebody like SZA, that was sort of the formula so anyway if we're going to get a reissue i wanted to, you know i was dreaming of a comprehensive my life reissue with alternate takes unreleased tracks Every Day It Rains, which was supposed to be on the album, but um, got cut at the last minute. And the remixes, many of which were more popular than the album versions. You know, I wanted something like they do with those deluxe Motown versions, like with Marvin Gaye and stuff, where you just get uh, the, 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 you know, the mix where he walked in and then slammed the door at 03 or the mix where he fell asleep during it i just wanted all and again if we're just talking about streaming and we're not talking about that there's a physical limitation of what's out there what difference does it make um but this herstory is kind of bizarre and that involves it involves tracks and remixes mostly from the first two albums and um then the other weird thing that's going to drive people crazy, real collectors, is that not every version of the album has all the tracks. Now, you get the most on the 7-inch box set collection, which retails for $109.98. Damn. And one of the rare mixes on that is the Bentley's mix of You Remind Me. Remember how I was talking about a few podcasts ago how a lot of R&B songs around the time had that kind of smoothed out kind of soul to soulish beat that's kind of what the bentley's mix of you remind me was like and the box set but so you know you get a mix like that and but but the seven inch box set doesn't include the classic every day it rains which i just mentioned which has faith on the background and was a huge radio hit in some cities certainly all of the East Coast, and it was intended for the My Life album and was even on the cassette version that was sent to critics, but in the end, it only landed on the soundtrack to the hip-hop concert film, The Show. But then, fortunately, Every Day It Rains is on the CD and the 12-inch versions. So I hate weird shit like that. Just, what the fuck? I mean, because the thing I hate about that is because the only reason for something like that is to kind of gouge us for money, right? Because... Common sense would say you're putting out the same thing on every on every carna- carnation of the album. So 
to switch things up just a little bit like that means that they want us to buy the CD. They want us to buy the um, the double album, and they want us to buy the seven-inch box set. And this is ridiculous, you know. Um, now, all three include two very essential mixes, the Mary James LL Cool J. They've actually already put that up on stream. And the I Love You remix with Smith & Wesson. Unfortunately, the beautiful Lauren Hill remix of Be Without You, I mean Be With You rather, is nowhere to be found on any of the versions. So maybe there was some clearance issue or something like that. But that's one of the best um that's one of the best Mary remixes. And to me, that's so important because that establishes a connection between Mary and Lauren and a mutual respect very, very early before um I used to love him and then subsequently all that I can say. So to me, it just kind of, um, it's an important part of that story. But in any event, um, the random collection of tracks just baffled me. So I decided to look over the press release um, and then it started to make a little more sense. This is what the press release says. Her story is a highly curated look at the multifaceted sounds of an unforgettable era in music. The box set is a definitive look at a moment in time when sounds were coalescing and Mary was establishing herself as a tour de force in R&B. And, you know, I just got to thinking, and, and the truth is that Mary's only greatest hits album, Reflections or Retrospective, is 13 years old. And if you were around in that moment, you know that that was right after she'd had the big hit with Be Without You. Two different songs, People Be With You, for my life and be without you um, from the breakthrough. Anyway, so at the time, they were heavily invested in selling her as an adult ballad Mary. You know, that was kind of her vibe. And that particular Greatest Hits was very light on songs from the first two albums and very light on anything that was um, hip-hop. I'm not even sure that it had any rappers on it. So I can see the need for them to want to reestablish her as a sound innovator, especially in light of like her epic BET Awards performance. And I think this new compilation will show the younger generation that she's not just somebody's sad song singing auntie, but she really started this hip hop soul shit, you know? So that I do think that that is important. I mean, in making that kind of statement. But that said, I still think that we just need to wean ourselves off this nostalgia thing, find some kind of way, or else we're never going to get new music. That said, I will be buying, I ain't pre-ordering, but I will be buying the Her Story CD. And, um, I mean, if $109 just dropped from the sky and hit me in the head, I'd probably buy the 7-inch box set just because I think it would be cute. But, um... And I will, I'll buy an accompanying t-shirt, you know what I'm saying? But it is what it is. But, you know, it's just, they're using our love for the artists. They're using our love for what the artists have done to block us from getting um, new things from the artists and blocking the artists from developing. So, I don't know, that's just all I have to say about that. But in any, in any event, I want to thank you for rocking with me once again. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share with a friend. And until next time, B.
be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave and one of Prince's early inspirations, be your damn self. <laughs> All right, y'all. Love y'all. Bye.